turn over in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we looked at faith in uncertain places, unexpected places. And we looked at the (coughs) Gentile woman who was touched by the Lord. And uh, we looked at her faith, how great it was. And this morning we're going to continue as we weave our way through the the Gospel of Matthew. We're getting there, slowly but surely, okay? (laughs) I thank you for your patience. But when it comes to the Word of God, you can't cut corners, I don't believe so. This morning I want to talk about how quickly we forget. The subtitle is A Heart of Compassion. And we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 to 39. And there's one line in this text of Scripture down in verse 32, and I just want us to look at that real quick before we read the text. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude. I have compassion on the multitude. And that kind of marks out the lesson that we have this morning. We're going to be looking at the compassion of the heart of Christ. The compassion of the heart of Christ. When you stop and you think about what compassion is and what it means, a good definition is a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the pain and remove its cause. So it's not only to suffer with someone or to feel the pain that they feel, but also to have a strong desire to see its cause permanently eliminated. And that's really what the Lord is doing here in this text. It's a wonderful definition of the heart of the Lord and thereby a heart, the heart of God. When you look at the, the Greek language, it means... Even more than that, it refers to the bowels or the guts of somebody, the stomach. And you know how you get sick in your stomach when something bothers you, when you're worrying about somebody or something. You get an ulcer. Well, that's what this term refers to. It refers to Jesus actually feeling physical pain on behalf of the people that he was having compassion on. Now, if you know anything about God, and if you've looked at all through the scriptures, you understand that God is a God of great compassion. In other words, he suffers with his people. He feels their pain. And more than that, in this text, Jesus seeks to take care of their pain, to alleviate their pain. That hymn we just sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is taken out of Lamentations 3.22. And it's a wonderful statement about the compassion of God. It says, it is because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. In other words, we're not getting what we deserve because we would be consumed in his holy presence. But it was his compassion that restricts that consummation and also extends mercy to us. And it says that the mercies of God, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Aren't you glad this morning that we serve a God who is faithful to always be all that he is? He's faithful to be just. He's faithful to be wise. He's faithful to be loving, omnipotent. And he's faithful to be compassionate because that's the God of the Bible. God is a God of great compassion. And over and over again, if you look through the Old Testament, you're going to see that his compassion, his faithfulness, just jumps out at you. He's constantly saying, I have compassion on you. I'm withholding my judgment from you because of my compassion. And what that means is God feels in the depths of his heart when he strikes us, he's striking himself. Because he's a God of compassion. The Bible even describes the people of God as the pupil of his eye, the apple of his eye. And when his people are touched, 
One Bible teacher said, when God's people are poked in the eye, God recognizes it. Because it's like poking God in his own eye. I don't know about you, but that gives me hope. Especially in the world in which we live today. In Romans 9.15, it says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. We serve a sovereign, compassionate God. It's a God who cares. A God who cares about every little small hurt and every little small need in every life. That's the kind of God that we serve. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we come to this text and we find out that the Son of God, the God incarnate, the God with human flesh on, is also compassionate. We're not surprised to see here that Jesus says, I have compassion. Because we've heard him say it before in our study through Matthew in chapter 14, verse 14. It says, Jesus went forth, saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion. In chapter 9, verse 36, he looked at the multitude and he was moved with compassion because they were scattered as a sheep without a shepherd. And so our God is a God of compassion. Christ, God in human flesh, is very much equally compassionate. Now let's look at our text this morning in Matthew chapter 15. And I just want to read this text for us beginning in verse 29. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. And when great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking and the maim made whole and the lame walking and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude and jesus said how many loaves do you have and they said seven and a few little fish so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes and so they all ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. I want to set up this text for us just a little bit. I want you to give proper foundation, understanding, so that we understand what's really going on here. Remember, for about... A year and a half, Jesus has been ministering in the area of Galilee. He's been serving in the northern area of Palestine among the Jewish people. And he's been doing all these miracles, these signs, these wonders. He's been teaching about the kingdom of God. We've seen that as we've studied through Matthew. But we've also seen in the last several weeks this mounting resistance to the teaching of Christ. A mounting rejection. At first, everybody was behind him. And then all of a sudden he started to say some non-Jewish things and people started to scatter. And the pressure was on. The one who ruled this area was named Herod Antipas. And we know him because he was that petty king. He wasn't a real king. He was just appointed to kind of keep peace, political peace in Galilee. But he was paranoid, as most small little petty kings would be. And he thought someone might usurp his position. And so, as a result of that, he had already executed John the Baptist. And now he was basically fearful of Christ and his following. And the tremendous power that he, he, he had. And so, I think if he'd given the opportunity, he would have taken Christ out too. So, you have the pressure from Herod Antipas. You also have the hatred of the scribes and Pharisees. We saw that last week last couple weeks, who were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And because he unmasked their empty tradition and their empty ceremony, 
Every time they tried to put him in a corner, he turned it around on them. And they ultimately wanted to kill him. And then you had the crowds of people who constantly flocked around Christ. There was this frenzy of people that just basically wanted to make him king. And they weren't, you know, they were just ready to lead a revolt to overthrow the the, the Romans of the, the day and the Herodians, and they didn't want to deal with that, and they thought, hey, this is the, the, the prime opportunity. This guy could do it, Jesus, so let's follow him, and, and we'll make him our king. And there were those who appeared to believe on him, but all they wanted was something from him, another free meal, as we saw before. And they had a shallow faith at best. So you have all this pressure mounting against Christ. And it says in verse 21 of our text from, from last week, that he departed, in verse 21, from there to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon. The resistance of the people and the shallowness of their, the, the false disciples and the, the pressure of the scribes and Pharisees and this odd guy named Herod Antipas who was kind of giving another avenue of pressure. And then there was just the bottom line need for him to spend time with these 12 disciples. In less than a year from now, he would be facing trial and execution. And he needed to let them know how to prepare. He needed to help them understand the message that they were to carry to the uttermost parts of the world. So all this mounted together caused him to leave Galilee. So in verse 21, it says that he left and he went across the border. He left the land of Israel into the region of Tyre and Sidon. In our modern day, that would be leaving kind of the Palestine area, for Lebanon to the north. And what he was doing was he was looking for a private place. He sought release from that pressure. He wanted to spend time with his disciples, so he moved away. But as soon as he got there, in verses 22 to 28, we see that he ran into a Gentile woman, and she wanted a healing. And he was amazed by her faith. And so she got the healing of her daughter. And we see here a marvelous, you might say, a contrast between the shallowness and the resistance and the rejection and the spiritual pride that was found back in Israel. And then he's in this Gentile land and he, he sees somebody that's open, that's hungry, that's humble. What he couldn't find among his own, he found among strangers. And only two times in Matthew have we heard him say, you have great faith. And both times they were what? They were Gentiles. And so this is a very important section in the Gospel of Matthew. So this woman, woman here, and also what happens in verses 29 to 39, happens in a Gentile area. That's important for you to note. Jesus was reaching beyond the covenant people of Israel, beyond the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's reaching out to Gentiles. And he's really giving us a picture of what his kingdom will look like. Oops. I didn't look at the slideshow before we started. <laughs> Silence your cell phone. Glad it didn't ring. <sighs> The intention of Christ coming to Israel was never that it would end. But that was a means. Israel was to be a means to take the gospel out to the uttermost parts of the world. And so when he came to Israel and they rejected him, then he went to the Gentiles. That has always been his intention. Now look at verse 29. He had been in the area of Tyre and Sidon. It says he, he departed from there. That's the area of, of Phoenicia. Skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat there. Mark tells us, because he has a similar incident, that when he left there, he went through Tyre and Sidon, which meant he must have gone north to cover the area of, of Tyre and Sidon. You can see there on that map, hopefully, that's Tyre. Sidon is even up further, that m up, upper left-hand uh, line there. And so he, 
probably went up from Tyre over, and then you can follow the blue line down back to the area of Decapolis. Quite a ways. Quite a hike. It's modern-day Lebanon. And, and Mark says that he, he left there, and he went east in order to come along the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Decapolis. And so we have the Lord on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he goes north to Tyre, Sidon, circles around, comes down along the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and kind of lands in this area known as Decapolis. Now, it's important to note that there's a time gap here. There's some obvious time that's gone by. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we think, well, this verse must just, you know, this like happened the next day or something. No, it didn't. We're probably talking weeks. And the reason I say that, if you look at at chapter 14, verse 19, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he fed the 5,000, it says, then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the what? What's it say? On the grass. Okay? On the grass. Well, in chapter 15, verse 35, my Bible says, he commanded the multitude to sit down on the what? Ground. Interesting. One has grass, one's dirt. Well, the difference is spring and summer. Over there, grass doesn't last a whole lot a whole uh, long time in the summer because they're hot. And so it tells us that there must have been some time between Jesus feeding the 5,000, him ministering in Galilee, and going up Tyre and Sidon, coming back down and landing in Decapolis. And so Decapolis is a a southeastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's not far from Gadara where Jesus delivered the two demoniacs. Um, modern day, kind of the southern end of the Golan Heights up there, you might, might say. But Decapolis means ten, ten cities. And basically there was a, a group of ten little cities there, and they were wedged between two Jerry, Jewish territories. And in the middle was this little wedge called Decapolis. And these ten cities were, were free, what they called Greek cities, because a lot of the fishing went on and stuff. The Greeks kind of inhabited that. And even now, uh, modern-day archaeologists go over there, and they're finding all these statues of Zeus and uh, Athena and Artemis and, and Hercules and, and, and all these different gods that the, the Greeks would have served. And so here you have, between these two Jewish territories, full-on Greek paganism. And Jesus came there. Jesus went right there. Now, he just didn't wander in there. They were acquainted with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, very early in his ministry as he began teaching and preaching and healing. It says that he went through all Syria, which was to the east of Israel, and they brought people who were sick of various diseases. And then in verse 25 of chapter 4, it says the multitudes came, and it lists all the regions from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem. So it tells us that these people were familiar, even though they were pagans, with the ministry of Christ. And so Decapolis has heard what people were talking about Christ, what was going on. And I'm sure that they, they heard of the, the signs and wonders, and that brings us to verse 30, when we looked at the handicapped. It says, The great multitudes came to him, having with them lame, blind, mute, and maimed, and many others. Great multitudes. Uh, This is a wilderness area for the most part. It's not a a real high traffic area. And yet all these people show up. And it may have taken some time for this to happen. It's not like Jesus just wandered in there and, you know, all of a sudden there's several thousand people there. We don't know how long he was there. He, in this area, I mean, he he may have um, been there for quite some time ministering, doing whatever, but as the word got out, these multitudes of people came to him. Now, if you look at that, if you're in your Bible, I don't know what it says in yours and mine, it says the last group, he he lists the people who were being healed there, and he says he healed them uh, having 
with them the lame, blind, mute, and then my Bible says maimed. Maimed. It could mean mutilated. It could mean crippled. It's the word kulos in the Greek. And it's used later in Matthew chapter 18 when the Lord says, it's better for you to pluck out your eye and go through your life without one rather than to offend God. That's the same word. So it has the idea that they were actually bringing people to Jesus with either severed limbs, no arms, no legs, or one arm, one leg, whatever, or maybe they were born with some form of deformity. And maybe they only had one eye. Maybe their eye had been plucked out in a war or a battle. But they were actually bringing people to him who didn't have a leg. And the Bible says he gave them one. <laughs> they didn't have an arm. And they walked away whole. Maybe they lost a finger. And he restored their finger. It says at the end of verse 30, and that's important to know, and we'll touch on this later, but in, in verse 30, it's, it's important to note, at the end it says, he healed them all. I mean, it's such a little statement there, you almost skip over it when you're reading it. You've got to put yourself in this kind of arena where Christ is. All these people, the Bible says you have 4,000 men, let alone women and children. So there could have been well 20,000 people pressing in around Christ at this time. And it says what they're doing is they're bringing all their crippled and their lame and people without legs and without arms. And it says there that they put them down at his feet. What that means that word, if you study that word out, put them down at his feet, it means to kind of fling with haste. So you have all these thousands of people approaching Christ and his disciples, and they're just throwing the main people at his feet. I mean, talk about chaos. You know, you see this stuff go on on TV, right? And they form little lines, and it's all perfect little line. Next, come on up, you know, and they come up and they, quote, get their healing. Uh, that's not what it was like in Jesus' time. There it's just a mass of people. There was no order here. There was no line. And they were all frantic to get their new arm or their new leg or their new eye. And it says that he healed them. I mean, people are coming up to him without any arm and they're walking away with an arm. When's the last time you saw that on TV? I don't think so. And it says as a result of that, in verse 31, the multitude marveled. It means that they were struck with absolute awe. They could not believe it. Because there was no human explanation. Logically, this didn't make any sense. There's nothing in our minds that could say this is normal, everyday behavior. It's beyond our imagination. This is incredible. You know, Joe, the guy down the street, yeah, you know, he was born without an arm. He's got one now, and he's full, he's whole. Amazing. So you have this pile of humanity dumped at his feet, getting up, walking away whole. And it's, when you compare these stories, remember, this is a Gentile land. When Jesus did the same thing, in the Jewish land, I mean, their wonder was great, but here it, it uses a different word. It says they were beyond measure astonished because they were Gentiles. See, the Jews were limited by their pride and by their ceremony and by their law and all this stuff. And so when Jesus would do something, rather than saying, wow, that was pretty incredible, what did they conclude? Oh, he did it on the Sabbath. He broke the law. And the Gentiles didn't have all that, that garbage set up before them as far as legalism. And so these folks here who were mainly Gentile people were just blown away. And they say that he did all things well. They saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. 
And then look at what happens in verse 31. It says they gave glory to what? The God of Israel. You see, this was not their God. They were pagans. They worshipped all these other odd, weird deities. In chapter 9, it says that the Jews marveled and they glorified God in verse 8. But here it says they glorified the God of Israel. And when the Gentiles glorified this God, it had to be the God of Israel. Because they knew their God couldn't do anything like this. And they knew that God was in their presence through Jesus Christ. And there was no other explanation. Now, if you stop and you think, what does it mean to give glory to God? What does it mean to glorify God? Turn over to Luke chapter 5 with me. And I just want to point this out real quick and we'll get back to our text. Luke chapter 5, verse 25. Here, Jesus heals this paralyzed person. And it says in verse 25 of of Luke 5, Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. See that? And we find more in verse 26. It says, And they were all amazed, all the people that were around there were amazed, and they glorified God, and were what? were filled with fear. And we have seen strange things today. Glorifying God is a combination of praise and fear. That's exactly what it is. It's a combination of both praise and fear. On the positive element, this is wonderful. This is unexplainable. We can't believe this. It's astonishing. It's miraculous. And yet, once... You see a miracle like that, you begin to realize, wow, I'm in the presence of God. This man must be God because there's no other explanation for these miracles to be done this way. And then the fear sets in because you're in the presence of a holy God who has incredible power. And this holy God probably knows what's in my sinful heart. So there was a sense of fear in the presence of Christ And yet, also a sense of praise. And they glorified the God of Israel with positive praise. And no doubt, they were probably trembling because they realized that they were on holy ground. And so this goes on for about three days, it tells us. And the crowd never leaves. They just keep on healing people, healing people. People walking away with new limbs and all this stuff is happening. All day long, the Lord heals And he's probably teaching in between the healings about the kingdom and all sorts of things. They lay down on the ground. They go to sleep and the Lord wakes up in the morning with his disciples and they're still there. And there's more people that need to be healed. Well, this goes on for three days. They don't ever leave. That brings us to Matthew verse 32. He not only dealt with the handicapped, but he also deals with the hungry. It says, now Jesus called his disciples to himself, and he said, I have compassion on the multitude. Now, I want to mention something here because it's kind of important that we understand this. A lot of critics of the Bible say, oh, well, Matthew must have messed up. You know, he has this feeding of these, all these people twice. He has the feeding of the 5,000, then he also has the feeding of the 4,000, and he probably just got things mixed up, and it's probably the same group of people. Well, it's not. And there's a little chart there, I think, in your notes that kind of talks about the differences between them. And some people think, well, Matthew just messed up the, the facts here. But that's not the case. Christ was saying that he gave in provision for Israel the first one, feeding of the 5,000, primarily Jews. And what he's doing is he's feeding the 4,000 plus women and children in the Gentile land, primarily Gentiles. What he's saying is, you know what? I'm going to give provision for the people of Israel, but I'm also going to cross the border, and I'm going to even give provision for those outside of Israel. 
It's the same lesson that we find in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost when among the Jews the Spirit of God descended and, and all this phenomenal stuff started happening. And when the gospel then in chapter 10 was taken to the Gentiles, the very same phenomenon occurred. And Peter went back to the Jews and he says, you know what, you're not going to believe what I just saw. But the same thing is happening to Gentiles that's happening to the Jews, dealing with the Holy Spirit. And so, if our Lord was going to feed the Jews, 5,000 of them, plus women and children, he was demonstrating that, you know what, I'm also going to feed the Gentiles. Commentator Alfred Edersheim says this, says, the Lord ended each phase of his ministry with a feeding. This is kind of interesting. He ended the ministry of Galilee with the feeding of the 5,000. He ended the ministry of the Gentile area with the feeding of the 4,000. And then he ended the Judean ministry before his death on the cross with the feeding of his own 12 disciples in the upper room. And he writes at the end here, he says, the Lord always leaves people fed. The Lord always leaves people fed. And so Jesus calls his disciples to him, and he says, I have compassion on the multitude because they continued now with me three days, and they don't have any need. You might look at that and say, well, three days, what's the big deal? Come on. I mean, some of us may desire that we could not eat for three days and lose some pounds, right? Or do a fast or whatever. Three days, what's the big deal here? But Jesus brings it up. I mean, I could see if it was three weeks. I mean, how long did Jesus fast for? 40 days and 40 nights. Come on, three days? What's the big deal here? I mean, I understand him giving these people new arms and new legs and new fingers and eyes and being able to speak, and that, that makes sense, but he seems like he's kind of focused on something that's a little petty here. They don't have enough food in their tummy? I mean, that's how we logically conclude it. But see, we don't understand the compassion of God. He has compassion for not only people's spiritual needs and not only their eternal needs as far as the consequences of where they will go one day, but he has compassion on people's physical needs on a daily basis down to the point where he's concerned with the person's daily food. I mean, it's interesting to me that God would be concerned with something so petty. That's why David could say, I've never seen the Lord's people begging bread. That's why the Lord said, if my father cares for you like the grass and the lilies, don't you think that he's going he's to care for you? And that's why he said in, in the disciples' prayer, when he gave them that model prayer, when you pray, pray this, give us our what? Our daily bread. Why? Because God is concerned about that. At the end of verse 32, he says, I'm not going to send these folks away fasting lest they faint, lest they collapse. They're out here in the middle of nowhere. This would not be the right thing to do. I'm not going to let them collapse on the way home. And remember, he's been busy for three days. He hasn't been sitting in some tent, you know, studying his navel with the, with the disciples. He's been busy in ministry 24-7. He's probably worn out physically. And we think God has bigger things to focus on than <laughs> food. And he didn't have to bring the disciples in on this, if you think about that. But he did. He didn't have to. He could have went, think, you know, Big Macs for everybody. But he didn't. He brought the disciples in. Why? Because he had a plan. He had a purpose. He was trying to teach them something. Some people say, well, he must have needed the disciples to deliver all this stuff. You know, he couldn't have done it all himself. Are you kidding me? Look at what he did. He fed, he fed how many people <laughs> in the wilderness? I mean, come on. This is God we're talking about. So he's saying, look at me and learn from me. I have compassion on these people. Not only on lifetime problems, not only on eternal problems, but you know what? I'm concerned about these people's daily needs. 
See, and that's where, in order for the church of Jesus Christ to be effective in the world, we have to learn to demonstrate the compassion of Christ on that level. Because God is infinite in his compassion as he is in every other attribute. So the disciples, verse 33, say to him, well, where are we going to get this much bread in the wilderness to feed all these people? Now, the title of the message today was simply, I put it in the bulletin there, how quickly we forget. And a lot of people look at this text and they say, yeah, these stupid disciples. How could they quickly forget? I mean, God just fed 5,000 plus people and now they're saying, oh, what are we going to do? And they're all, but I beg to differ with you. My title refers to how quickly we forget that we serve a God of compassion. But there's a lot of people that really kind of go after the disciples at this point. These thick-headed fishermen, boy, they just don't get it. But look at this closely, because I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, I mean, we have to give these guys a little credit. They've been with Jesus for some time. And you say, well, what's the point of verse 33 then? When they ask, where can we get enough bread to, in the wilderness to feed all these multitudes? Notice, if you look at the previous feeding of the 5,000, they were just blown away. They thought, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Remember that? We don't have enough to give everybody, even a tiny morsel, Jesus. What are we going to do? Well, they learned from that experience. They learned that the Lord feeds his people. He fills everybody. And that's why they say there in verse 33, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to what? Fill. Not feed. Fill such a great multitude. They remembered exactly what happened before. And what they're saying is, oh no, here it goes again. Jesus is looking at us like we're con- we can do something in this situation. Jesus, we're in the same situation we were in before. We're in a wilderness area. You have all these people around you, and we don't have anything to give these people. They're away from towns. They're away from villages. There's no resources at all. And they're simply saying, here we go again, Lord. We have nothing to offer you. That's really what they're saying. They knew Jesus could do it. They couldn't have forgotten something like that. Can you imagine that? They knew he could fill them up. But they also knew that they couldn't. (laughs) That's a key point. It's a very important point to know that they didn't have the resources needed. And what they're saying is, Lord, if you're depending on us, sorry, we can't help you. You've got to do it yourself. And maybe it was because the feeding of the first crowd was, the response was kind of negative. First crowd was fed, and what they want the next day? They just wanted more food, remember? Plus, they wanted to kidnap Jesus and make him their king kind of radical, and he had to escape all that. So maybe they thought that this whole kind of approach wasn't really the most effective way to go, but you know what? Jesus, you're in control here. And maybe even played into their mind a little bit, being Jewish, these people are Gentile, Jesus. Do you understand that? But I really believe they're just kind of backing away, saying, we don't know what to do. And so Jesus says to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Look at what they say. Because they remembered before. 
They said seven and a few little fish. He didn't ask them how many fish, but they offered him anyway. <laughs> and the point is, you know what? This much food with this many people is useless. There's no Andrew here to come up skeptically and say, what are these among so many? Like he did the first time. Nobody was dumb enough to say something like that again because they saw him feed 5,000 plus people before. And so it says in verse 35, he commanded the multitude to sit on the ground. Then he probably offered a common prayer, blessing before the meal. And he took the seven loaves and fish. He gave thanks. He broke it, broke them and said, and, and then it says, he kept giving to his disciples. He not just gave to us, he just kept giving. He kept on giving to the disciples and the disciples to the multitude. They come with these baskets, and he keeps filling up the baskets, and they keep delivering the baskets. People are probably gathered in 25, 50, groups of 100, whatever, and these disciples are going out. 20-some thousand people probably gathered here. And they just keep on handing out the food. And in verse 37, it says, So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. When you compare the two stories, it's kind of interesting because in the first story, the feeding of the 5,000, how many were left? How many baskets did they have left? Twelve. Here, there's only seven. So you wonder what the difference is. There is a difference. Because there's a difference between a Jewish basket and a Gentile basket. Jewish basket was just kind of a small little thing they could put under their arm and carry around because they didn't want their food to be contaminated by any Gentile hands or anything, so they would keep it close to their body, and they would guard it. And that's a certain word. In the Greek, kofanis, and it's this little basket. Basically, one or two meals could fit in it. Well, that's not the word he uses here. He uses spurtus, which is a Gentile basket. And if you're wondering, well, how big is the Gentile basket? Well, in Acts chapter 9, it says that the apostle Paul was lowered down over the wall in Damascus in a spurtus. So it's a pretty big basket. It was big enough to put a whole person in it. They may have needed more than they did the first time because they hadn't eaten this time, remember, for three days. The first time, just one day. So these people were a hungry group of people. And you don't want a hungry group of people to be hungry too long. Bad things could happen. So Jesus filled them up. And then it says, He sent away the multitude, got in the boat, and came to the borders of Magdala. That's the story. And it's similar to the, the, the first story in a lot of ways, but there's also some differences, and you can see those there. But there's, in closing, nine quick things I want to share with you that we can see from this text. First of all, the divine power of Jesus Christ. We see that very clearly. Um, Jesus wants us to know that he is God, because only God can create It's God alone who can create. And here he's creating limbs and creating eyes and creating tongues and recreating bodies and fish and bread. He's the creator God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And plus he did it in his own name. Whenever the disciples, whenever the apostles did anything, they always did it in the name of who? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus did things in his own name because he is God. Secondly, there's a profound truth here about healing. About healing. He healed those who were maimed, it says in verse 30. And today, unfortunately, in our modern day church and, and all this stuff that we see, people to be uh, so-called faith healers, you know me, I'm kind of hard on these people because I think they're frauds. I think every one of them is a fraud. I don't believe that God uses healers 
in the day and age we live. Can God heal? Definitely. But he doesn't need to use some shyster on TV to do it. Who's only interested in filling his pockets with your money. And we need to understand this. And the reason I say that is all the healings that you hear about today, they never square with what happens in Scripture. People today who claim these healings or have the power to to heal and you have these grandiose testimonies floating around, they're never verified. But when you study the Word of God, it becomes abundantly clear that the modern-day healings that we see around today are not anything near what Jesus did or his disciples did. You can look for the rest of your life somebody who calls himself a healer who can put an arm where there is no arm, put a leg where there is no leg, put an eyeball back in a socket for somebody who's lost it. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to verify, would it? It'd be pretty easy, I would think. It doesn't have to happen in some distant land in Africa or wherever they always say these things happen where nobody's there to see it. I mean, they may deal with some things, but I think that they discredit themselves because they don't rise to the standard for which the Scripture speaks of a standard of divine healing laid down by Jesus Christ himself. See, healing organic disease and adding limbs that aren't there, that's creative power. Only God can do that. That's the kind of healing that Jesus did. God believe, I believe God heals by sovereign choice. He could do that today if he desired. But he doesn't have to use an individual called a faith healer to do it. Third lesson here, that the goal of all ministry is worship. The goal of all ministry is worship. It says at the end of verse 31, they glorified the God of Israel. They glorified the God of Israel. Praise is that for which all ministry seeks see we don't minister to people just to meet their needs that's not why we minister to people that's not why we are involved in ministry hopefully their needs are met through the ministry and hopefully as a result of their needs being met who do they give glory to they give glory to god and god alone That's the goal of all ministry. 2 Corinthians 4.15, it says, Paul says, carry the message and be thankful that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. Any ministry that glorifies anything other than God, there's some problems. And so when you learn what the heart of God is in John 4, you understand that The Father has sent his Son into the world, it says in John 4, to seek what? True worshipers. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. For the Father seeks such to worship him. That's the purpose and goal of everything. It's not to pump up your tank, it's not to blow up your head, feed your ego. There's no human way that we could describe what actually happened in this text in a logical way. Only God could do it. And he alone receives the praise and honor. Remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 22, John, both times he fell down, he worshipped an angel. And the angel said, what are you doing? Get up. You're worshipping the wrong guy. We don't look for people to worship us. As Christians, we look to deflect that to God and God alone. Fourthly there, kind of goes along with it. It says, the necessity of relying on divine resources. Well, in this story we see that they had to rely on divine resources. The disciples said, look, don't look at us. We don't have anything for you, Jesus. Sorry. We got a couple uh, fish and, and, and some bread. 
We can't help you. You know, that's right where God wants us. God wants us at a place, whether it's in ministry or in life, where we go before him and we say, God, you know what? I don't have nothing. I don't have nothing for you. I have to depend on you to work through me. I have to depend on you and your divine resources to meet my needs because I can't do it. I feel inadequate. That's right where God wants us to be. The world tells us just the opposite. No, no, no. You have to, you know, you have to, you know, build yourself up and you have to climb the ladder of success and you do it over the backs of other people. It doesn't make any difference, but boy, you get to the top. We need to come to an understanding that we don't have anything to offer God. When you feel adequate in and of yourself to do anything, in life or in ministry. I'll tell you very frankly, you know what? You're pretty much useless to God. Useless to God. Matter of fact, you're probably a real pain to him. You're in the way. I mean, don't think that God needs you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of us. He wants somebody that's willing to come before him and say, God, I don't, I don't have what it takes. Sorry. I lack the personality, I lack the charisma, I lack the education, I lack the intellect, I lack everything that you require for this job. But you know what? For whatever reason, I'll do it if you want me to. (laughs) But you're going to be responsible for the outcome. i got to depend on your divine resources. Very important lesson to learn. And then also, fifthly, the lesson of divine supply. Because the neat thing is God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't say, yeah, okay, you got it right now, Steve. You don't, you don't have nothing to offer me. Now stay there and wallow in the muck of your inadequacy. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you know what? The good news is I got a divine supply, and I am willing to freely give it to you. That's why the Lord says, you know what? Okay, I see what you got. Give me what you got. Give me your couple measly fish and the bread. Don't fret over it. Just give it to me. It isn't enough, but you know what? I'm going to make it enough. I'm going to multiply it supernaturally, and I'm going to make it enough. And then basically, everybody feeds their face, and they're stuffed. See, God gives us what we need out of his infinite store of riches. You feel inadequate? Good, you should. So should I. Because God is willing to supply his resources out of his supply. We need to remember that. Sometimes people in ministry especially, they get these big heads and they get these big egos and they're gifted in just incredible ways. They're just naturally gifted to communicate. They got the personality that could woo a crowd, that cause them to cry, cause them to laugh, do all this stuff. And sometimes I wonder, how much of that is God and how much of that is them? We have to be careful. He gives us a divine supply. Sometimes when you think, that the supply's out. It's not. Sometimes when you think you can't give anymore, you can't. Based on your logical spreadsheet. But you know what? Based on God's divine supply, He's not going to let you go hungry. We were down at a concert this last week and they had the the World Vision folks there and we were talking about, we used to support a child for years and then we kind of switched ministries because the child got older and and we were talking, my wife wanted to support a child and I'm just, I'm looking at the, you know, the the logic sense of this, 35 bucks a month, I I don't, where's it going to come from? Literally, where's it going to come from? And you know, there's something about 
meeting someone's needs that are a drop in the bucket to us. I mean, if I cut out coffee for a month, I'd have 35 bucks. So we're praying about that. And I'd ask you to pray about that too. I mean, when you see these kids in these countries that have literally nothing, no parents, no home, no nothing, and for a couple bucks a month, you can actually provide food, shelter, clothes on their back, education, and a spiritual voice into the life of the, of the ministry of Christ. It's a pretty good bargain. But we have to learn that it come, it's got to come out of divine supply. I mean, I know it's tough in the economy we're living in. Believe me. But you don't think God is bigger than that? He is. He always is. The sixth lesson there is the usefulness of a servant. Or the, uh, yeah, the sixth lesson. The Lord doesn't need waiters. He could deliver whatever he wanted when he created whatever he did. But he chose to include the disciples. In ministry, he chose to include us. That's why we're still here. I mean, if we weren't to be in ministry to some degree, when we got saved, God would just take us home, right? Why would he leave us here? To deal with sin and to deal with pain and to deal with all the stuff? No, he says, no, you know what? I want you to be part of this deal. I mean, I could do this all myself, but you know what? I'm including you in the work of the ministry. It's God who creates and we deliver. That's the basic principle in any ministry. We're going to spend all eternity serving Him. So if you're not serving Him today in the church, you better might want to wake up a little bit. Because as a Christian, that's what you're going to be doing for eternity in heaven. So maybe roll your sleeves up a little bit and get busy. Involved in ministry. And make it a priority. Seventh lesson. God gives liberally. In Luke 6, 38, he says, Given it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. When you're shaken and pressed down and pushed and shoved, it's still full. That's the idea. You know, when you go to the store and you buy a, a box of uh, crackers or a bag of chips, you know, you open up the bag and it's like, you know, a quarter full, right? You're thinking, well, what's, what's the deal with this? Well, that doesn't happen in God's economy. He gives liberally. God doesn't do that. He continues to give. And he gives out of his superabundance. Do you know that God continues to give and yet he never, and never the tank never runs empty? Ever? That's amazing to me. And also there's something to be said here of a spiritual investment. I mean, the disciples in this situation are kind of in an interesting position. They never get anything until they've given everything away. Did you ever notice that? Feeding of the 5,000. Well, we got these fish and this bread. Okay, give it to me. They have to literally give it to, to God. They have to give it to Christ. Same thing here. This is all I got, Jesus. You know what? Give it to me. Put your faith, your trust in me. You give it to me, I'm not going to let you hang in. 2 Corinthians says, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, and you will reap bountifully. That's not a word of faith statement. That's scripture. That's what the Bible says. And we could go around the room today, and we could take testimony after testimony after testimony, and we would hear people say, you know what? I, I was down to my last penny, and I had to make a decision. You know what? Am I going to give to God as I've always done, or am I going to keep this to myself? And they give to God, and God supernaturally provides. Because that's what God is a God it does. He doesn't leave us hanging. And the final lesson is very simply that we serve a God who is limitless in his compassion. He's limitless. It doesn't have boundaries as sometimes ours does. I'll share this story with you. This past week, if you read in the paper, there was a homeless man killed in Atherton in a traffic accident with a car trying to cross El Camino and got hit by the car and died. Well, 
I get this call on Friday from Atherton PD and I'm with the chaplain in, in Redwood City, but they didn't have anybody. They were wondering if I could come down and, and talk to um, this individual who was a friend of the person who was killed. And I said, okay. And I didn't know if I was going, they were real unclear on the phone. I didn't know if I was going to the accident scene, which happened at 6.30 in the morning. This was like 9.30 or whatever. So El Camino was backed up and all this stuff. And it pretty much had cleared out by the time I got there. But I was actually going to the police department in Atherton. And so I get there, and I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what I'm going to tell this person. Is this the person who hit the guy? Is this the guy who was his friend? Who is this? And I get in there, and the detective says, hey, I'm so glad you came. You know, we kind of, and he goes, well, this is, this is uh, Ron. And uh, Ron and Fred were crossing El Camino, and um, Fred didn't make it. I said, okay. I said, well, uh, what's his background? And the detective said, well, I mean, just let you know, Ron's homeless. They were both homeless. And, you know, I went in that room, and I sat down with this guy. And, yeah, you could tell he was homeless. I won't go into the details why. You can figure it out yourself. But I remember sitting there going, okay. I didn't know this is what I was coming to. I just, I thought this was going to be something different. In my mind, I'm thinking this. And he's telling me how much he loved his friend and how he'd helped him with his diabetic problem and he was kind of despondent the last couple days and uh, he's going on and on and on. And all of a sudden, this text just jumped out at me like, wait a minute, are you not going to be compassionate toward this individual because he's homeless? And talk about conviction. <laughs> I was like, whoa, Okay. So then I rolled my sleeves up, and I spent about an hour and a half with him. And, you know, we had a good conversation. And I could honestly say by the end of our conversation, um, I'm going to try to follow up with this guy, even though he's homeless. He says he lives in some camp down there. So, you know, but, I mean, it's, it's little things like that that sometimes we think more of ourselves than what we should. And I'm thinking... Here I am, I kind of a busy morning, and I, I broke away for this? <laughs> and God just really convicted my heart, beloved. And I'll tell you what, that's what God wants to do through every one of us. He doesn't want us to limit our compassion to boundaries, whether it be Israel or a Gentile area or a homeless person or a rich person. God calls us to be compassionate to all. Because all, the last time I checked, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all need a Savior. And we are to go into all the world, not just our comfort zone of people that we like to minister to. But God calls us to drop the boundaries, to roll up our sleeves, and to get busy showing the compassion of Christ to a lost and dying world. They're only going to see it through us as believers. They're not going to see it in the world. They're not going to see it on TV. They can only see it, they can only experience the compassion of Christ as we are willing to go out into this dark and sinful, dirty world, roll up our arms, and get busy for the things of God. That's what he calls us to do. And so I want to pray this morning that we would make a commitment to that as individuals and even as a church. That we would desire to see God work in fresh ways and new ways in and among us that the compassion and the love of Christ could go out from this place into a dark and dying world filled with sin. Not so that Grace Bible Church could be glorified or an individual could be glorified. But so that God, so that Christ could be glorified, could be lifted up, could be exalted. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would touch our hearts as only you can. Lord, you know the needs that are in this building this morning. Father, maybe there's folks here that, that feel their resources have run out. Maybe it's not even monetary maybe it's emotional maybe it's being that ear for someone to to bend and to talk to lord we pray that you would give us the grace give us the compassion that jesus showed these these people in this gentile area 
Lord, that we would be willing to roll up our sleeves and see what you have us to do. Uh, Lord, we don't have any hidden agenda here. We don't know sometimes what you were calling us to do, how you're calling us to minister. But Father, I pray, I know that you are. You don't want us sitting on the sidelines. You don't want us uninvolved in the body of Christ. You've called us to serve. We're to follow the example of Christ, the ultimate servant. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would move and work. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, Lord, I pray that the message that they would hear this morning is that God is not a a God who doesn't care. He cares in oh so many ways. And he cares about the tiniest little thing in your heart. And he cares so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die a cruel, wicked, horrible death on a cross. because of his love for you, to take away that sin, the penalty of sin. And when you cry out to him and you say, Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, I don't have anything to give you. I have nothing. My hands are empty. I'm calling on you to fill me with your love, with your compassion, to save me from my sin, because I can't save myself. The Lord knows I've tried over the years, but I can't. Only you can affect change. Only you can transform a human heart. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you this morning, that you would do that, that work that miracle. Give them the faith to believe. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with the song.